That little document you carry when you travel to another country can be important in ways you hadn't counted on. A sort of lovesick damsel had written in saying, how do I know that my sweetheart truly loves me? And the reply was, show him your passport photo, and if he survives that shock, you know he truly loves you. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Craig Robertson tells us how the passport came to take on such an important role in our travels, no matter what your photo looks like. And a panel of Americans who've relocated to Europe explain how they became so-called expats and what's different about making a life overseas. I bought a one-way ticket with the idea of going over to France and maybe finding a little bit of work, which I did, and I've been there for 30 years. They'll share their own practical advice on making a home for yourself in Europe. Once you find the city, I think you can find the job and then really find your lifestyle. The history of the U.S. passport and expats in Europe. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Until the 20th century, there was no requirement to carry a government-issued passport. Now, less than 100 years since its creation as a government document, you don't leave home without it if you're leaving the United States and want to get back home when it's time to return. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we meet three Americans who've settled into lives in France, Spain, and Italy. And no, they haven't given up their citizenship. They join us in our American studio to tell us how they've been able to fit into another culture. And they offer tips in case you're tempted to try to do the same. First, Dr. Craig Robertson from Northeastern University in Boston has studied the ways we cross borders now and in times past. He's written a fascinating book about the history of the U.S. passport and its evolution into a government requirement. His book is called The Passport in America, The History of a Document. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I had just assumed you always had to have a passport to travel, but it's a relatively new thing in our history. Yeah, I was with you on that assumption as well, um, and I was quite surprised when I discovered how new the passport is. And really, the document that we think of as a passport and the requirement to have a passport to travel really came into being after World War I. Um, it was brought in as an emergency measure and then has stayed with us. So it's less than 100 years old. So why all of a sudden in World War I did our government decide we need papers? It, w- it wasn't the U.S. government on its own. And in fact, that's one of the reasons European governments decided as well. I think there was just this sudden realization that if you wanted to keep your country secure, particularly in wartime, it was probably useful to know who was crossing the border. And that was after World War I. So there was all these spies and all this stress between countries. Exactly. In the U.S. context, even before the U.S. entered World War I, um, there was concerns about German spies and agents smuggling information in and out of the United States. So that was a major reason. But again, passports had existed prior to World War I. They just weren't required. So you talk about in your book how if you went on a grand tour after World War I, you could have 100 or more stamps in your passport. And they have this whole concept of the passport nuisance yeah, that's right. Yeah, there, were, there was a great complaint in a letter to the New York Times from a, a businessman after World War I who was complaining that Europe had been broken up into all these little countries. And so now you had to cross these borders and have your passports stamped. And this created an immense amount of frustration for people, both in the sense of having to present the passport, but also the hassle they hmm. had to go through to get a passport. Oh, because before World War I, you had all of these empires, and part of the result of World War I was no more Habsburgs, and so on. Right, that's right, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, you've got all these smaller national entities, and that comes with more stamps. Today, the remarkable thing is you can travel all through Europe and not get a stamp on your passports. I know a lot of tourists, they want a stamp at the border. It's just part of their souvenir sort of thing, and uh, it's frustrating because unless you're a very cute girl, you cannot get a stamp on your passport. Well, yeah, I don't know about being a cute girl. But yeah, no, you're right. And interestingly, the passport has always had that idea of being a bit of a souvenir um, because passports used to be just a piece of paper, right, about 12 inches by 18 inches. And people used to get those framed with their stamps and put them on the wall. So a much more visible souvenir than a little booklet tucked away in your pocket. I love looking at your uh, through your book and to see some of those old passports because they're not what we think of. So we have passports as we know it after World War I, but like when Ben Franklin went from the United States to France, uh, what did he use? Um, he probably wouldn't have had to use anything, actually. I mean, there were passport requirements or sort of various um, laws requiring documents, but they were really enforced, particularly if you were of a certain status. Franklin did print Um, what were called passports for U.S. citizens abroad, but he printed them in French and modeling them after an official French document. 
Were these like safe conducts? I know in the Middle Ages, if you went somewhere, you'd have a, a letter from your king saying, give this person safe conduct. Yeah, that's pretty much what they were. They were sort of almost like a letter of introduction, verifying mm. that you knew the right people, basically. Okay, so somebody stops you, and you can say, well, look this, I'm legitimate. It's like, yeah. today, you, you can't get into some countries without a ticket getting you out of that country. They don't want you just to be, you know, slumming around or something. This would give you some sort of respectability. I definitely, yeah. And that's why, you know, they were optional documents, and they were they were used by travelers in the 19th century, generally to, or the travel guides of the 19th century encouraged um, U.S. travelers to carry them to Europe if they wanted to get into private museums, if they wanted to be able to pick up mail from a post office address that they'd given, or to present themselves to the U.S. ambassador or the U.S. consul, who could then introduce them to the right kind of people within that particular city or town. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about passports, the history of passports. We're talking with Dr. Craig Robertson. His book is The Passport in America, The History of a Document. So, Craig, uh, Ben Franklin didn't really need a formal passport. Mark Twain, I, I just love the thought of Mark Twain traveling around Europe. Would he have been traveling just with a letter of introduction, do you think? Or what do you imagine Mark Twain would have traveled with? I'm sure he's the kind of traveler who would have taken a passport, right? He would have used it, I'm sure, as a letter of introduction. But he would have probably carried a passport like many travelers of that time did. Again, not required, but just helpful, like photo ID or something, huh? Yeah, like that, definitely. And I think just a form of almost security as you travel abroad, because you're away for 18 months or two years for a lot of American travelers in Europe in the 19th century. The Civil War and the freeing of the slaves did a lot to move along this notion of personal identity, as you write in your book. A little bit, yeah. The, the Civil War was the only time prior to World War I when passports of sorts were required at U.S. borders, and that was basically to keep people in. That is, the, hmm. the, particularly the North wanted people who were eligible to serve in the army to stay in the North and not leave the country. So the Civil War had passport laws, but they were enforced for very, very different reasons. And, of course, these were just documents with someone's name on them, maybe a brief description of their appearance, but that's it. So very easy to trade them around or, or swap them around. In your studies, Craig, do you have some sort of a feeling of just this whole rationale for why do we need a paper or a document that says who we are? Has that changed over the time? You know, I, I don't really think so. I think that um, when I was doing some of the very early research for this book, it was actually around 2002, 2003, and I could move from reading, you know, a New York Times from 1915 or 1921 to the New York Times of the current day, and there was a really similar debate and concern about borders and national security. And I think that that's really what drives the desire to implement the passport. And then there is the sort of faith in new technology, that this new technology can accurately identify someone. So in our current moment, it's biometric technology. And around World War I, it was the photograph. Now, isn't that interesting? So this whole sort of nervousness about war and borders and, and enemies, it bumps up the technology of these documents. So photographs became associated with passports in the time of World War I. And in a post-9-11 world, we have these chips that have so much more information on them. Yep, that's right. In both situations, you have sort of a public uncertainty about the nature of these technologies and what's involved. You know, So in the 1920s, part of the passport nuisance was this affront at these photographs, right? That these photographs that made you look like a criminal because there you hmm. were having to take your hat off and stare straight at the camera with a light background behind you. And it wasn't the three-quarter pose and the ornate background that people associated with with photographic portraits or, or portraiture. And you still have that mugshot feeling today. Definitely. And yeah, and from the very beginning, the passport photo was seen by many people as an unreliable and inaccurate representation of themselves. There's a great editorial the New York Times ran in the late 1920s called No Respecter of Persons. And this was all about the passport photograph, what they referred to as the distortion of passport photography. And so there was a lot of, you know, concern about that. And there was, I mean, I came across a, a nice little anecdote on a woman's page where um, a sort of lovesick damsel had written in saying, how do I know that my sweetheart truly loves me? And the reply was, show him your passport photo. And if he survives that shock, you know he truly loves you. <laughs> when was that written? That was like 1928. Oh, that's great. You know, what's interesting in this sort of uh, modern day of travel is... Uh, 
it seems to me there's a lot of tit-for-tat between nations and retaliation when, when we raise our levels of security and all the red tape to cross our borders. Other countries will do the same thing, not because they need to, just because it's a matter of saving face and, and respect to have our people treated by them the same that we treat their people. Did you run across that in your research? Well, yeah, and, and both historically and in a contemporary situation. I mean, in post-9-11, when the U.S. increased the number of countries that were required to have visas and introduced um, digital fingerprinting to more accurately identify people entering the United States, other countries felt, as you said, sort of an affront um, by that act. And Brazil was one of the countries which retaliated, and they required all Americans to be fingerprinted. Though they were actually fingerprinted with ink fingerprints, not um, digital fingerprints. In one particularly notable situation, an American Airlines pilot arriving in Brazil took a front at um, the demand to be fingerprinted. And so rather than showing his fingers to the clerk and putting them on the ink pad, he um, just raised his middle finger to the security camera and walked through and was subsequently arrested. Oh, my goodness. So he offered just one finger to be printed. Just one finger, yes. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dr. Craig Robertson from Northeastern University in Boston. His book, The Passport in America, The History of a Document. Craig, why do we have French on our passports? Well, in the 1920s, when the passport became more of an established document, the League of Nations was the key force behind it. And even though the United States wasn't part of the League of Nations, the United States signed on to this project to standardize the passport. And so because of the League of Nations initiative, French became the second language that was put on a passport. So back in the 20s, the, the universal right. language, the second language was French, whereas today it's English. Right. And then, what, 10 years ago, I think, or maybe longer, 15 years ago, the United States added Spanish to its ah, passport. Okay. But the reason we've got French in our passport is then because it dates back nearly 100 years when that was the language that you could expect people would use as a second language, as a, as a, as a common language. Yes. language. yes. There must be some kind of careful international cooperation. Uh, are passports essentially the same in every country, uh, or do some countries not even have passports today? Passports are essentially the same in all countries, um, even to the extent that under the Taliban in Afghanistan, where you were not allowed any photographic um, reproductions of people, the exception to that law was the passport photograph. Wow. Right. So, so the passport is recognized as the document that is needed for international travel and, you know, is arguably thought of as the most secure identification document available. So the necessity for a photograph on a passport trumps even the most orthodox religious concerns that prohibit people from using images, as far as you know. At least in that instance, yes. Wow. Craig Robertson, author of The Passport in America, thanks for your insight. Thank you for having me. How do I look? How do I look? How do I look? Very good. I must say I'm amazed. Next, we check in with three American-born tour guides who use their passports as an entry key into making an entirely different life for themselves in Europe. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Maybe it's a fantasy you've had for years. Or perhaps you've met someone special and want to be with them, even if they live in Europe. Well, there's more than one way to turn yourself into a full-time European, and that's what we're here to explore right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Joining us to share their stories of fitting into a life in Europe are three American-born friends of mine. After growing up in Philadelphia, Rebecca Berry fell in love with Paris. 
30 years later, she still makes France her home. Nigel Muro left California to try living in Berlin a few years back, and now that he's met his wife there, they make a home for themselves in Madrid. And Ben Cameron fell in love with Rome and with someone special in Rome, and he divides his time now between living in Seattle and Italy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Rebecca, tell us your story. How did you end up in France? I was uh, originally from Philadelphia area, and I was I was a French major, actually. And as all good language majors should, I took the year abroad. I went to France, and I studied in Aix-en-Provence, which is next to Avignon. Uh, came back and graduated, and then decided many years later to go back to France. I bought a one-way ticket with the idea of going over to France and maybe finding a little bit of work, which I did, and I've been there for 30 years. 30 years, and yeah. we'll talk about that experience momentarily. Nigel, what's your story? Well, I am from California originally, and I started working for a consulting firm just out of university, but uh, found that it wasn't really the lifestyle for me, and uh, decided that I was young, I had nothing to lose, and moved abroad. This is 10 years ago now. I started in Barcelona, and then I soon met the woman who would become my wife about a year after I moved abroad. And right. uh, that really speeds things up. And and your your wife is from where? She's from Barcelona. Barcelona. Exactly. All right. And Ben, what's your story? Uh, my story was a little different. I was already working in Europe as a tour guide, shuffling back and forth between the U.S. and had a chance to meet a lot of great people. And one of those people turned out to be the love of my life and uh, I've been in Rome for the past five years. So it was more the person than the place, but so I've learned I wonder, to love the place. I know that's interesting because what comes first, the love of the person, who may be European or whatever, or the love of the city? In your experience, for most expats, because you guys all know a lot of Americans that are right. uh, adopting uh, Europe as their home country, what comes first? Well, I fell in love with Paris. That's a, it's a very beautiful and easy lover to have. I, when I arrived, I uh, just wanted to stay. I never thought about actually packing my bag up. I never looked at the calendar and said, Ooh, maybe it's time to go, because I was just always enamored with uh, the country and traveled around So we have one life to live, and you thought, Fran- s- France is for me. I had no reason to leave, really. Nigel, is it the um, is yeah. it love of the culture, love of the food, love of the uh, I think men just... or women? What's, what's the <laughs> it was the love of, of something different, I think. When I first moved abroad, it was going to be for the year. And yeah. then I figured, well, I'll try another year. And meeting my wife, of course, helped a lot, but I had this kind of fantasy that I would move from city to city every two or three years, learning different languages. And then you realize that it's much more enjoyable to settle down into one country and, you know, one partner. Now, you've all been there for many years, between you 50 years, I think, here. Does the original romance of living in Europe wear off? Uh, Ben, what are some of the hard realities that you actually have to, oh, man, I'm committed to Rome now, but uh, it's really frustrating, too? I think the the biggest problem is... is just everything that you know is different, but that's also the exciting part is getting to learn a new way of living and, and realizing that, you know, maybe things are different, but they can be a lot better too and, and kind of uh, joining the two worlds together. Every day a, is an education. It's I would a, think a main thing is just we're accustomed in the United States to efficiency, mm, lack of bureaucracy. Sure. We just get it done, make it happen now. Sure. In Europe, it's I, I would imagine it's a little different. Nigel in, right. in Spain. I think we all live in Mediterranean countries and we were just talking about this beforehand that Ben brought up a good point is that if there's a problem... In northern countries or here in the United States, sometimes you just kind of have to go through certain steps to get it taken care of. and Or sometimes they just can't do anything at all, and you say, well, you're on your own. Whereas I think in Rome and Madrid and Paris, there's always a way around to sort of solve whatever problem You know, problem it is. You've got to kind of go with the flow. You've got to right. learn the system. You certainly right. have to be patient. Right. But like here we have three Americans from Philadelphia, California, Seattle, all living in the Mediterranean part, the romantic part of Europe, the, the Latin countries. You've got true. France, uh, Spain, and Italy. And I've got a lot of European friends, and they tend to be moving from the Germanic countries down to the Romantic countries, too, giving up the efficiency right. mm. for the la dolce far niente, the sweetness of doing nothing right. almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca? There is a different work ethic, I think, going on. You know, your workers, they're beavers. They get up and they work incredible hours. The French work there, you know, for 35-hour week, and that's it. They know their rights. They stick to them, and you need to make the appointment, and they will show up eventually, but there's, you know, you have to So we Americans have certain rights. We got the rights to, uh, you know, we want the rights to, to work hard and prosper. We yeah, want the right yeah. to, and then in Europe, in France, you got the right to make sure you don't work more than 35 exactly, hours. Exactly, yeah. Huh, that's a different work ethic. And yeah, it's a lot of Americans would put down Europe for that, but a lot of Americans are abandoning American uh, workaholism for that. Right. You know, we, we work to live rather than living to work. Right. I hear a lot of Europeans almost bragging about that. Exactly, yeah. No, that plays a big role, I think, in everyday life there. And oftentimes, even in Spain, there's this 
five, ten minute courtesy when you've made an appointment. If somebody doesn't show up in the first five, ten minutes, it's actually rude of you to start whatever you're doing without giving them the five, ten minutes to come late. Oh, that's gentle. That's <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I got I to be thoughtful about that myself because I'm pissed off after five minutes and then I'm on to something else after ten minutes and that's just not a very European way to do things. Right. I think there's also the understanding, though, too, that everybody's in the same boat. There's difficulties that everybody has to face. And today you might be having a difficulty, but tomorrow it's somebody else. And, and you just work with that. And, yep. and there's more of the understanding. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking about Americans dreaming about living in Europe and then actually making it happen. Michael in Houston's on the phone. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, I'm uh, happy to be here. Yeah, what's your thoughts for our, our friends here that are living in Europe? Well, I was wondering uh, how difficult is it to get uh, a work permit to stay in Europe and work? And then uh, what about Americans who might want to retire and live in Europe? Is that feasible? Is it very difficult? Let's talk red tape first here. That's a very good point. Uh, can Americans just kind of settle in and pretend they're a tourist to the next day be a resident? Or what hoops do you have to go through, Nigel? I can give you my experience between Spain and Germany. They're two very different countries. Uh, Germany as follows some of the stereotypes that we all think of. It's very efficient. When I got there, I didn't speak actually any German, and uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, did. And we had to go through the Ausländerbehörde, which is the foreign sort of office where you get your visas. And it was very clear if you had a school, an English school in this case, I was teaching English at the time, to provide work and could guarantee that work for you, then you would go there with your papers, and you had to show that you had uh, health insurance. And then it was just a straightforward process, and it was a matter of waiting some three to four months. Whereas in Spain, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of loops you have to jump through, and a long waiting period. And so it really depends on the country. Rebecca, what was your experience in France? Well, um, what I needed to do was to have a company declare me, and it was a very Mm -hmm. long and tedious procedure. And the reason for this is that uh, I'm a French resident now, and the company that wanted to hire me posted the job description, which they need to do by law Mm -hmm. with the, the National Unemployment Agency, and they were obliged to interview anybody who was a, a likable candidate. At the end of the three months, they went back and said, well, we didn't find anybody. But mm. we did find this American woman. She's perfect for the job. Now, that's my understanding all over Europe, that uh, European countries don't want to unemploy one of their people to let an American move in. Mm. So if a company wants you, they need to establish uh, some sort of make a case that right. we're not causing unemployment by welcoming, giving this, this American right. a work permit or a, a residency permit. It plays a big role, definitely. Huge yeah. role. Definitely. Now, Ben, you're like half a year in Rome and half a year in Seattle. Correct. I go back and forth. So my just, experience is a little bit different. You're just kind of camping out, or, or do you have to go through any hoops? I uh, Well, there's always hoops. I mean, in Italy, there's there's hoops, and then there's hoops around the hoops, so it's, it's a little <laughs> bit different. I know that in general, the concern is that you're taking advantage of the social system without paying taxes. So if you show up, you can prove you have a certain amount of money in the bank. Actually, I had a friend that uh, ended up having to buy a house first, and then once he could prove that he had a house, then he could establish his residency. So he put the cart before the horse, but... There are ways around it. So all over the world, people don't want people just uh, camping out Free on loading, their, so, yeah. freeloading on sure, their system. Sure. I even remember when, when Hong Kong, a lot of people were leaving Hong Kong and coming into Vancouver, Canada. If they could establish they were bringing with them a quarter of a million dollars or something and said, you're more than welcome. Sure. It's probably the same in Europe. You just don't want a lot of uh, Sure. And there's some great resources out there, too, like Transitions Abroad, which has been around for a while, first in magazine form now on a website. And for volunteering, for living abroad, for working abroad, it's kind of the one-stop resource to get ideas and to share experiences about living in different parts of the world. That's a great point. If you really are interested in settling in, Transitions Abroad, Mm -hmm. magazine and website. Correct. Used to be a magazine, now just a website. Just a website. Okay. Mm. Any other comments for Michael about uh, red tape and so on? Michael, you can always get married. Makes it a lot easier. (laughs) How does that make it easier? (laughs) Once you get married to a European Union citizen, then you receive a European Union ID and you can move within the entire union working and living. Now, that's the big thing about the European Union is you got 27 countries or something right. and everybody right. can relocate. There's even EU organization that helps fund right. students and teachers to live and work and study in other countries. So they're really into that. Definitely. So Definitely. you get you get yourself uh, hooked up with one European legally. Right, right. You get yourself a legal uh, residency card. I should say here that I did marry for love. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make that very clear. Michael, any other questions? Oh, how about tax implications? If you're making money in Europe, uh, how does... You just pay taxes in the U.S., and are there any, uh, like, tax breaks on that, or do you pay the same amount? How does that work? You make some money in Europe, do you pay as an American? Right. Well, no, I, you establish the fact that you're living abroad more than, I think it's 330 days a year, around that area, 335, at which point you also have to show that you're paying taxes in your country of residence, which would be Spain for me. 
And then as long as you show that declaration, as you know, the United States requires its citizens to declare no matter where they're living. And then once you show that declaration, you're fine. But you don't have to pay taxes in both countries. Ah, so uh, United States is fine with you living and paying taxes abroad as long as you're paying tax somewhere. And right. if you manage right. not to pay taxes in Europe, then the United States says, well, then bring it here. I imagine that could be a possible situation, right? Right. I mean, yeah. All right. Michael, thanks for your call. Sure, thank you. And Lisa's on the phone in Davidson, North Carolina. Lisa, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, Rick. How are you? Doing great. I have kind of a two-part question, and one part was just answered. You touched on it in the last talking. Um, I was asking if there were any reliable resources for Americans who are considering relocating to Europe that you, your experts there would consider to be the most useful. And also, what are, like, what are the biggest mistakes that Americans make when they transplant themselves? <laughs> you know, to, like maybe these three could comment on what the biggest mistake was that they made to where maybe we could learn from their mistakes. That's great. So first of all, Ben mentioned Transitions Abroad, the website, and that's a, a primary resource. Nigel and Rebecca, are there any other resources that you would recommend? Uh, in France, there are many. There are several publications and associations that will reach out to Americans who are uh, settling in, where to get an English-speaking doctor, uh, you know, if you want to send your children to a school that's not French or just to reaching out to Americans settling and making life just a little bit easier for them. There are magazines. France USA Contacts is a very good source. France I've, USA Contacts. Contacts, yeah. Yeah, I've noticed even in Paris there's wonderful expat American communities with their own oh, little sure. newspapers yeah. and, and you can settle in with the help of that. Yeah. I suppose the danger is you, you find yourself embracing the expat community and it, and it slows you down from assimilating. Nigel, what can people do to assimilate uh, more quickly, assuming that's their goal? Right. No, that is actually a big issue. I think it's a knee-jerk reaction for many of us to move abroad and fall into those expat circles because it's comfortable and you're in such a new place that it can be scary. But one of the best ways to go about it is there are things called language exchanges. They carry different names in different countries, but in Spanish it's in intercambio. And literally, it's you get together with somebody and you speak Spanish for an hour and you correct each other, obviously the native speaker correcting me. And then we turn around and speak English for an hour. And it's a way to meet people. It's a way to improve your language skills. And language skills, of course, are one of the most important things with integrating yourself into a society. So that sounds like a neat give and take kind of thing where you're Definitely. actually doing a service. You're connecting Absolutely. with a local who needs you as much as you need them. Right, right. You teach each other each other's language and you develop a friendship and a connection. And you're, you're branching into the local community with a... A dimension of it that really is interested in getting to know expats. Definitely, definitely. And that's a great way to not only get to know people, but also to just simply feel a bit more welcome, a bit more like you have contact with locals. Now, do you have a sense that some countries will match your country's, your home country's customs and make it a little easier to melt in or get up to speed with the local culture? I would say, I mean, absolutely in Spain, for example, in my case, I think it depends on your personality rather than the country. The United States is such a big country that obviously we all have different backgrounds here. But um, living between Spain and Germany, for me, there was a huge contrast. I'm a very warm, uh, almost touchy-feely person. And physical contact in Germany, um, let's just say they prefer not to have so much. <laughs> That's very interesting because you, I can tell you're a, a person that would fit better in the Mediterranean world than, uh, uh, you know, Achtun kind right. of in Germany. <laughs> this is just not Nigel. I mean, the best example is that in Spain you greet somebody by giving two kisses, usually right. men to women or women to women. And uh, that was one of the things that I loved the most when I first moved to Spain. I thought, this is great. I you mean, do that in Berlin, it's not going to get you very Exactly, far. <laughs> no. And we actually had to pull our friends into kisses. It was kind of awkward. Rebecca, any thoughts on that for an American uh, settling into France? Um, when you go to a, in a cultural situation, there are different things you need to remember. I, I made a couple of mistakes in not following along, and I was interpreted as being a bit rude, I suppose. You know, when, when you go into a party and you meet, you do actually go up to everybody and shake their hand and introduce you know, yourself, which is something you don't do in the United States. Right, that's right? true. And the same as when you leave, you must shake everyone's hand, or by that time, you're probably giving them four kisses, right, right. which is the way. One of the questions I made a mistake of asking was, what do you do for a living? And that's not necessarily a mistake, but people place much less importance on it abroad. And it's more about who you are, your personality, and what you're interested in. Right. I think the thing is now it's probably easier than it ever was before to do that because there are books out there. There are resources, like you know, a whole series of books just about the cultural differences that help you so get you can there. Be, was, you need to be a student of these cultures. Yeah, and I was also going to say that it doesn't, you know, Paris, Spain, I know in Italy that we have a lot of uh, expat communities in all the big cities and even the small towns that can help you. You know, if, if you just if you're interested in it, look for whichever region you're interested in, and you're going to find some sort of community that's already there that's blazed that trail. It's going to help you kind of learn from the mistakes that we've all made. Right. It seems like each of you are determined to 
embrace your your new home culture and, and assimilate. I do know that there's a lot of communities that are really filled with people from the Drizzly North that are interested more in changing their climate than their culture, and they maintain their German or their Belgian or their Irish community, maybe on the coast of Del Sol or something like that. Do you see that much at all in Spain? Yeah, no, I know. And one other thing, too, is just following up on Ben's point and also what we were talking about as well is one last mistake that I think many of us make is we move abroad and we try to assimilate and sort of integrate ourselves in the culture, and it doesn't work in a particular city or even a particular country. But I think the knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, then Europe is not for me. And ah. really, it, you should be trying different areas because different cities, even within the same country, have very different personalities. And I found that although I love Barcelona and Berlin, Madrid was really the best fit for me. And so I think I was ready to give up after my first year in Barcelona because it had been a rough year. And then I moved to Madrid and found the perfect city. I've heard that Barcelona is, is more like a, a fancy model who's very it impressive is. but yeah. hard to approach. Whereas, it is the pretty whereas person Ma- in, the, in the party that everyone Madrid. wants to flirt with. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to flirt with Barcelona, but it's if true. you're going to get anywhere, go to yeah. Madrid. And uh, that's why those of us who live in Madrid absolutely love it. And uh, that's for good reason. Now that is an inspiration for a tourist just to remember that you, even as a tourist passing through, you can connect with people right. in true. Madrid quite easily compared to some other cities, perhaps. Right. Do, do expats have the problem of falling into this rut of just teaching English as a second language? I mean, that seems like it'd be the natural default uh, occupation for a lot of people. Is that a good thing or it is, could it be a problem? I think it's a great way to start. I mean, I think yeah. I started like that. Many of us have started like that. Yeah. And you, I think you go through an evolution of your career as you start by teaching English because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, there are schools that need native English teachers. Mm-hmm. And then you find either that it's for you or it's not for you. And you go about finding other careers. I have friends that are working in, as a Pilates instructor, uh, tour guide friends, friends that do uh, working as an American actor in Spanish television. So I think we all just need to have time to get there. And you've got to at least present yourself in a way, ultimately, that you are providing some sort of a service right. that is unique. Right. And then you can get that working permit. Definitely. So, Lisa, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. More of your calls are just ahead at 877-333-RICK as we examine the possibilities of being an American expat making a new life for yourself in Europe. Our guests are Nigel Murrell, Rebecca Berry, and Ben Cameron, who've each made a new home for themselves in Spain, France, and Italy. And for a quick link to the websites we mention in the show, look in this week's show details, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Tips for reinventing yourself as an American in Europe, full-time. That's our topic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Nigel Murrell, who was raised in California and now lives in Madrid, Rebecca Berry, who grew up in Philadelphia and now calls France her home, and Ben Cameron, who divides his time between Seattle and an apartment in Rome. And Amanda's on the line in Hudson, Massachusetts. Amanda, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. My question is, um, does a move to Europe make sense right now in the economic climate. Because I know that, you know, the climate's not great here, but it's also not great in Europe. It doesn't make a difference or would now not be a good time to make a move. Yeah, Rebecca was talking earlier about how Europeans are less likely to give you a residency permit if you can't establish that you will add something to their economy without displacing one of their workers. It's a good question. Uh, Do you guys have any thoughts on, given the economic climate in Europe, is it good or bad for people sure. settling it, in? I mean, I can speak to the two countries that I've lived in, and they're actually radically different. Um, it's the worst and the best right now, economically speaking. Germany with and Germany Spain, and Spain. Right. Um, you probably know that Spain's unemployment right now is hovering around 22%, and uh, around the youth, which is 16 to 24 years old, it's almost 45%. Really? Whereas Germany's official statistics, um, I just looked recently, it's down under 6% unemployment, which is incredible for them, and so much so that 
Angela Merkel, who is making the rounds of European countries, is now promoting German culture and language in order to make up for the lack of labor that they have right now. And so my wife works in a German publishing company, and she said there's been a skyrocket effect of German textbooks and German learning because everyone is headed in that direction. If Germany was not the destination you wanted to go to and you wanted to come to Spain, then I would say yes. Right now would be a difficult time to find work in Spain, even as an English teacher. I know that academies um, that I no longer work for, but that I used to work for, have stopped hiring just because so they it, don't have as many Given costs. the ebb and flow of economic good times and bad times, right. if, if times are good in Europe, it's an easier time for Absolutely. an American to go there. Absolutely. Now, you're in Spain, which is right. one of the worst economies in Europe, right. and you're starting a business right. uh, for tourists, uh, right. what madridaudiowalks.com. Exactly. So you live in Madrid. You're a tour guide. Right. There is uh, always a market for tourism. Do you have any hurdles, uh, Nigel, to set up your company, or can anybody just hang out a shingle? No, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's become easier. It depends on the country, but um, my company is a website where it'll be selling MP3 tours of Madrid. Mm -hmm. There's very little infrastructure, but it's pretty straightforward as far as setting up a company, and if you did have an idea and you had some financing that you could get started with, it would be much easier to set up in Europe because that's the easiest way to break in, is having your own company. Um, much like ah, so starting your own company just as an entrepreneur, right. assuming you can weather the the difficulties of getting off the ground, right. Right. that is easier perhaps than going to some established corporation and seeing if you can exactly. get on. Especially one, these days. One problem in Europe is if they hire you, they can't get rid of you, and they've got to employ you and right. pay your benefits, and all right. the benefits have been... Workers have really negotiated a pretty good situation for them, right. which you could make a case is part of the problem right now. Right, that's true. In fact, my, my wife was part of that unemployment for a while, and she just found a job and just got past what they call the trial period in Europe, which is always anywhere from six months to a year. And then you're tenured. And then you're kind of tenured, exactly. They can still get rid of you, but there's a massive penalty involved, and it's much more difficult. So it just depends really on the country that you want to go to really right now. Amanda, does that help? Um, It does. Actually, if I could ask another side question. Sure. Um, I know you were talking a little bit about teaching English in Europe before. I've looked online a little bit. Is that lucrative? Can you make a living off of that? Depends on where you are, how much you work. And um, yes, Europe is cheaper in that sense in the bigger cities, in Madrid and Berlin. I think Ben and, and Rebecca would also warn me that Paris and Rome are more exceptions to that, but Berlin is one of the cheapest big cities in Europe. It's phenomenal. And there you can not only make a living, but you can live very, very well. As an English As an English teacher, teacher. yeah, definitely. Mm. Rebecca, any thoughts on that? Um, I started as an English teacher as well in Paris. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I did not make a lot of money doing it, but it got me in and it gave me a sense of worth and made contact. So it's a great start if you have no other skills. You know, if IBM is not going to hire you in Paris, then, you know, and you're willing to flip around for a little bit. Teaching English is... Well, I am a teacher. Oh, you're a teacher. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You could make a call out to the American University. Depends on what level you're teaching. But there are a lot of English-speaking schools in France. Okay, so Mm. it's not a matter of just making a little piece of paper with your phone number on it and thumbtacking it to the grocery to the store bu- bulletin board. It used to be like that. <laughs> but now you have to get in with a company that provides this service. Right. But so you're really, you're not just a self-employed one-off teacher, but right. you are part of a company, and they're looking for, in a lot of cases, they'd be looking for native speakers. Absolutely. Who would be willing to put up with whatever Absolutely. the wage is. And in countries where there's a lower level of English, such as Spain, Italy, um, and of course the further east you go, the more you'll find that. These countries will be more willing to facilitate the visa process. Uh, the Czech Republic, for a long time, is a big promoter, which is why there are around 40,000 Americans living in Prague, because many of them started as English teachers. It's interesting, because my son's over there working right now, right. setting up a kind of a student tour company, and for some reason, he has to establish one country as his residence, technically, and it is the Czech Republic. Republic. Hmm. And yeah. he said, well, that's just the easiest place for somebody in his right. position to be legal in Europe. Right. But if you are a teacher right now, then I can guarantee you that, depending on the country, but you would have a much easier route getting to Europe because schools are looking for oh, native speakers. Oh, because they're already a qualified, a certified teacher. Exactly. exactly. So you have some, a competitive edge right. over just right. anybody who speaks the language exactly. and says, hey, I can teach English. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, certified, yeah. I would think so. There's some good advice for you, Amanda. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the ins and outs of Americans actually living in Europe. And we're joined by Nigel Murrell, who's an American who lives in Spain now, Ben Cameron, who lives in Rome, and Rebecca Berry, who's lived in France for 30 years. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Robin's on the phone from Buffalo, New York. Robin, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for taking my call. And here's why I'm calling two questions. The first 
first is um, for the expats. Are you truly accepted by you know the countrymen, the people you deal with? Is have you become part of of their country, or do they still view you as permanent American expats and somehow separate from them? And and my second question is because I'm over fifty. For those of us, you know, you've been talking about opportunities for younger people, but for those of us over fifty, is there any way we can live in Europe and move there and work? Will anybody hire us? Ben. I would say my experience is a little different because I'm more recent there. And for example, the neighborhood that we live in, I'm the only American in the in the village, so to speak. And so it's Francesca anytime, tows you to the party. Exactly. Here's my American and we boyfriend. walk down the street, and I'm a minor celebrity. So I mean, I kind of get off on being a little bit different, and uh, people really appreciate that. And they're always very curious too. I mean, I think Italians in general are very curious about Americans and, and our way of life. I mean, I was even going to go back to what we were talking about before establishing a company there. They, without exception, they're all very envious of how relatively easy it is to establish a company if you have a good idea, if you have some backing in America compared to in Italy where there's so much bureaucracy to run through. Yeah. So they, they really are interested in our, our way of life and, and style of life and so on. And so. now you're still learning your Italian, whereas yeah. Nigel speaks Spanish and Rebecca speaks Indeed. French. Do people cut you a little slack? What is it Absolutely, and they're cause... very, very helpful. Italians in general, I think if you make an attempt and uh, – generally put yourself out there and put a smile on your face. They're going to be very, very helpful and, and willing to do that. Yeah, Rebecca? It, it can, life can be a little bit lonely in the beginning. And I remember when I first moved to Paris, even though I had a French degree, I won't tell my father this, um, I still had, it was rough. It was, I had a very a book, you know, verbs, but I didn't know how to chit-chat. And it was very difficult sitting in, which I wanted to do. I wanted to be accepted. And I wanted people not to say, hmm, you have a really, really strong accent. Where are you from? Or actually mm-hmm. guessing. Uh, that was a great moment for me when the taxi driver said, hmm, you have an accent, but I'm not quite sure where you're from. So I figured that I was oh, you're, you know, you're making, progressing. I was making some progress. But things have accent. changed a lot in the 30 years since you've been in France because oh, now sure. with the EU, it's all mixed up. Yeah. And you'll find, I would imagine, 30% of many countries are from all different countries, or mostly around Europe, but plenty of Americans, plenty right. of North Africans, and so on. Yeah, That's before true. it was, there she is, she's the American in Paris, but now... Yeah, that's can, the sense I cares. get. Uh, Madrid, for instance, you know, nobody's going to say, "Oh, you're not uh, uh, ethnic Spaniard. You're just you're just no. another Madrilino." And especially the fact that you're making an effort with the language. I mean, even I absolutely agree with Rebecca. We were talking about this earlier. Is that you sit through a lot of conversations where you have this kind of blank-eyed stare because you're trying to just catch a word or two. But as you start to learn the language and start using it, um, then they're very much accepted. And then once you learn it, you're you're in. Robin, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Yep. Each of you now are visiting the United States here in Seattle. While you're here, does it occur to you that, wow, I forgot how good the United States is? What, what do you miss about life here in the United States when you think about the life that you've chosen overall in Europe? Ben? I noticed immediately uh, coming from Rome, which is a big city, capital city, three and a half million people. But one thing I do notice when I come back is how multicultural the Northwest is in particular. And I look forward to having Vietnamese food, Mexican food, just this melting pot that the U.S. is based upon and still is today that you can walk into a store and have people of five or six different nationalities, which you just don't find in Rome. You know, Italy is a country that historically has had many more immigrants than immigrants, uh-huh. and that's recently changing, and it's a tough process. You know, I think that everybody's dealing with immigration, but in Italy especially, uh, it's something that's new and that they're trying to come to grips with. And the same issues that we dealt with in the U.S. at the turn of the century and the diversity that that brings and the yeah. vibrancy that that adds and the tolerance as well. I think it's a, a wonderful thing that sometimes we take for granted. And I think Americans do take for granted the tolerance. We can, we can love Europe, but Europe has some pretty serious issues about tolerance, I think. Nigel? I think for me it's uh, family-related events and seeing family and really not seeing family because obviously it's a long flight. And uh, I usually try to come back at least once a year, and sometimes I make it back twice. But sometimes you hear family doing certain mm-hmm. events that, for them, it's, you know, a drive. It's, it's routine, and for you, you're yeah, traveling halfway around the world. It sounds great, and you yeah. want to be there, and you can't. But, of course, communication has become a lot easier right. in the last decade, even. That's true. Ben and I were talking about that earlier with Skype, and Skype has made it incredible. And, yeah. uh, it I remember does, 15 yeah. years ago, I was excited to get a, a piece of mail at a hotel, and then That's all of a sudden right. it was a fax, and then there was an email at the hotel, and now you drive down the road, or you're on the train, right. and you're looking at your email and your telephone. Right. And, and you get yeah. back to the hotel or back to your apartment, and you can Skype people yeah. almost for essentially for free. Yeah, That's true. it's great. That's true. Mm. It's really Rebecca. helpful. Something that I always notice when I come back to the States, which is not too often, I come back every two or three years, it's just how every uh, everybody's so friendly. Americans really are friendly, and I hats off to, you know, to everybody for that. Um, one thing in France, and particularly in Paris, it is difficult to make friends. It takes a while. Whereas in here, um, in the States, you can sit down and 
you know, chit-chat to the person sitting next to you in the bus. And they're very, you end up, you know, seeing the photographs of their grandchildren and knowing everything about them. And that does not happen in France. That's good uh, And that's a, yeah. you know, it's really a lovely difference that I enjoy coming back to the States to, to see. I, I know a lot of Europeans, when they come to the United States, the first thing they want to see is one of these big box stores. <laughs> And, you know, this big gulp society and so on. It's just yeah. so, maybe it's not radical for you guys, but if you lived in a little town in Italy and then all of a sudden, wow. What is one thing that you'll probably buy here that you couldn't buy in Europe during your visit? Anything? Um, well, I like to cook a lot. and I buy a lot of uh, xanthan gum <laughs> to take back because mm. it's easier as a, uh, a molding agent to actually use over in Europe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rebecca? Uh, I'm five foot 11, and um, I'm going to buy a pair of jeans that are long enough for me. All right. Yeah. Ben? I come back and forth often enough that I I prefer to live like an Italian when I'm in Italy, and I take advantage of those American things when I'm here in the U.S. So, so you know you'll be back in the States in a few months. Indeed. So it's also this. the world is a smaller place. I know that if I really needed something, you know, peanut butter or something, I could. there are stores in Rome that's where true. that's available. But I don't find myself craving peanut butter as much as I used to, for <laughs> no. example. I remember as a kid traveling in Europe, and you just couldn't get these American things. And if I would go to the U.S. military bases, and the PX would have this kind of stuff that right. American would just fantasize about. A big deal over Thanksgiving was who has access to the commissary where you can get uh, <laughs> turkey and cranberries. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with expats about living as an American in Europe. One last question. How has being an expat allowed you to live the life you want to live? I mean, we all have one life here on this planet. It's a big decision, and it's scary to leave your homeland, to leave your family, and so on. You're all doing this successfully. Uh, What was your hope, and how have you realized that hope? I would say for the same reason probably that attracts anybody to travel. It's it's a chance to see a different way of life to learn. I mean, it's a continuing education and then to be immersed in it full time, it helps you to understand your own identity, where we come from. And you're a professional, so. as a guide, you're running all over the place, but it really is nice to go beyond being a tourist and actually be a Roman. Right. Nigel? No, Ben's got a great point. I think uh, my goal was simply to find a job I liked and then be in a place that I liked to be in. And where you could me, kiss people on the cheeks. Yeah, where you could kiss two people on the cheeks, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I found know, that's that a very good <laughs> issue, is just find a culture that fits your psyche. <laughs> right. It's true. There's and a it, lot of Germans that are stuck in Spanish bodies right. and a lot of Spaniards that are stuck in German bodies. For me, the most important place that. was the city first. And once you find the city, I think you can find the job and then really find your lifestyle. And that is a good point. If you're going to Spain, I mean, you could choose Madrid, you could choose Sevilla, you could choose Barcelona. Three distinct cultures. The same thing in Italy, the same thing in France, I'm sure. Sure, yeah. To be quite honest, I didn't want to be a workaholic. In the United States, you were all the time. And I, and I, I wanted to enjoy walking around and appreciating art and looking at buildings and and, uh, taking life a little bit slower than the pace that I was used to in the States. So it suited me to move to France and to take time to shop every day rather than stocking up, you know, for the yeah. for the month. Yeah. And um, just the, the pace is different, and, I, and it just suits my character better. Congratulations to each of you. I think that's bold, and I think that's really quite inspirational to think that you can want a certain lifestyle. And that's not talking about being rich or poor. That's talking about planting yourself in a place that fits your personality. I'd like to finish with a one-word answer from each of you. With your very best bet, where will your primary residence be? in 10 years. I can say that right now. It's Madrid. <laughs> Madrid? Mm, it's a tricky one. Probably in Burgundy. Burgundy, France. In Burgundy. Probably. That would be the, the region of France. Mm. And Ben? Summer's in Rome, winter's in Seattle, like it is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, backwards, but that's the way it is, and it's great. Ben, Nigel, Rebecca, thank you very much for your insight on how we Americans might become even more than a temporary European. Thanks, Thanks Rick. Thank you. The Eiffel Tower replica at Memorial Park in Paris, Tennessee, probably won't make the same impression on you as the original in France. But I'll bet there are plenty of things you can brag about about the place you call home. Send us a few paragraphs in a way that might entice fellow listeners to plan a vacation to your neck of the woods. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com for sending us your best effort. We'll share our favorites on the show from time to time. A listener to WQCS in Fort Pierce writes us to describe why she likes living on the Atlantic coast of Florida. Judy Andreessen Worthy writes us the following about her hometown of Stewart, Florida, where she can hear Travel with Rick Steves on WQCS from Fort Pierce. Here's what she writes. People used to call Stewart the best-kept secret in America. The sailfish capital of the United States 
Stewart, Florida is on the Atlantic coast, about 100 miles north of Miami and 120 miles south of Orlando. It has miles of unspoiled beaches and meandering waterways, unique bird and animal and plant life, unrivaled climate, and friendly people. There are wonderful beaches, lots of golf courses, great parks, lovely motels, and fabulous weather. Stewart is the home to Tiger Woods, Greg Norman, Burt Reynolds, and Celine Dion. If you come to Stewart, I'll take you to Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge on Hutchinson Island. It opened in 1876 to provide food and shelter to shipwrecked sailors. It's the last of its kind in the USA. This area is called the Treasure Coast because of all the shipwrecks and buried treasure that are found here. If we go snorkeling at Bathtub Beach, we might even find a gold coin. The Living Reef is 40 yards offshore. It's exposed during low tide, turning the beach into a natural bathtub. I'd also like to take you to the Florida Oceanographic Society to see the Gamefish Lagoon and even pet starfish and stingrays. Hutchinson Island is a prime nesting ground for several endangered turtle species. In season, we can watch them laying their eggs on a moonlit night. There are several interesting nature trails and boardwalks, both along the intercoastal waterway and through the ancient oak hammocks. You can go boating and fishing in the maze of waterways here too. We can dine outside at one of the many restaurants beside the waterways. Let's relax watch the water and wildlife, and reflect on the wonders of nature we have experienced in our newly found paradise in Stewart, Florida. That's a description Judy Anderson Worthy sends us of her hometown. Write us a paragraph or two about where you live and tell us what a visitor should not miss about your area. There's a link to send us your hometown brag in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help to our colleagues at WBUR Boston and to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading today's Where I Live entry. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've archived many of the interviews from Travel with Rick Steves by destination and topic and made them available as an app for your smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package on iTunes and at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.